You're listening to the Gov Future Podcast, highlighting discussions and insights around innovative technology impacting the public sector. Hear from experts working with and inside the government on ways that technology is shaping the future of the public sector. On this episode, we feature a panel discussion from the June 15th, 2023 Gov Future Forum DC event. We'll hear how government agencies are dealing with challenges in IT modernization, approaches to knowledge sharing, how emerging technologies and organizational and change management issues are pushing forward digital transformation in government. The panelists represented the Government Accountability Office, Internal Revenue Service, U.S. Department of Interior, and U.S. Air Force. Stay tuned. Welcome, everybody. I'm Kathleen Walsh. I'm an executive director here at GovFuture. We're so excited to have this panel today on IT modernization. So I will start by letting each of you introduce yourselves for about one minute, share your name, agency, maybe a fun fact. Sure. Taka Riga. I am from the Government Accountability Office, not as an auditor. Um, I'm the Chief Data Scientist, but I also am the Director of our Innovation Lab. Great. Thanks, Taka. Good morning, everybody, again. Uh, my name is Mitch Winans. I'm a Senior Advisor with the IRS's Enterprise Digitalization Office. Um, I have the good fortune of giving a demo for one of our mobile app prototypes we have right now. Um, let me see. Fun fact about me. Uh, originally from Southern California um, in the L area. I've been in D.C. for 15 years, and uh, last week was the first time that I um, remember seeing a California-type wildfire, Smoky Haze, in the uh, District of Columbia. So it was kind of a, a weird, surreal experience. But anyways, glad to be here. Look forward to the conversation. Thank you. Hi, everybody. So I'm Andrea Brandon. I'm with the Department of the Interior, and I am the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Budget, Finance, Grants, Acquisitions, Property, Small Business, suspension department, and I also have um, an integration and innovation office, which I call the, we're renaming it to the BI Square, um, but it's really good to be with you guys here. I am a huge Trekkie, I'm a big giant nerd, and uh, I love to talk about this stuff constantly, so. Yeah. <laughs> wow, okay, he's got me beat on that. He's got a pen, that's messed up. No. <laughs> really happy to be here. Hi, I'm Stuart. I presented earlier, uh, Chief Digital Transformation Officer at the Department of the Air Force. Fun fact about me, I have a three-year-old daughter, and uh, I've told her um, she can, I'll, I'll basically buy her a computer, which she can identify all the parts of the computer, and, and then we'll build it together. So we've been walking around Micro Center. Um, she's pointing at stuff like motherboard, graphics card, and things like that, which is really been been rewarding and fun. So she's she's basically there. So we're gonna have to I'm gonna have to buy her all the components of the computer to build it with her uh this summer. All right, that's all right. So Taka, we'll start with you. In the context of IT modernization, how can federal agencies harness the power of data to drive informed decision making and improve citizen services? I'll answer that question uh, maybe from a geo perspective. Uh, within geo, we have this three prong strategy. You know, using data is nothing new, uh, but in the sort of the day and age of AI, we want to make sure that we do so at a greater speed, greater effectiveness, greater accuracy. So within geo, the three prong strategy involves data science, data governance, and data literacy. Spoiler alert: data science is the easiest part of it, right? When you have good data, um, you know everything is essentially possible. So yes, we're working on the technical aspects of enhancing data science capacity, but part of the thing that we're really trying to address are the foundational issues around data governance. Otherwise, garbage in, garbage out. 
How do we make data assets visible? How do we make sure that we have policies surrounding access of that information? How do we make metadata um, exposed in a way that user can trust the information? We're even, even exploring the idea of giving a Yelp review for certain data assets so that people can understand you know, the difference between, let's say, a one-star data asset versus like a 4.5 star, um, depending on the usage of that information. But the other part I'll emphasize is the notion of data literacy. Um, you know, up till very recently, we've been operating in this sort of deterministic world, like self-reshi, everything is zero to ones, yes or no. Um, in a sort of a day, uh, age of machine learning, we're talking about 62% likelihood that somebody committed fraud. 62%. Is that a yes? Is that a no? So does your employee know how to interpret that information to drive Whatever that you're doing, policy making, you know, audit decision, evaluation, et cetera. So I think digital literacy is an important part of not just using the data, but how do you interpret the information coming out of that narrative? Uh, this may be a controversial statement. I, I never I never mentioned analytics and data science as a sort of an exercise of seeking truth, right? Give me a set of data, I will spin any narrative you want me to do. Uh, the idea here is how do we then use that data to support the kind of policy direction that we want to get to, the kind of evaluation, um, sort of the you know, quality that we want to achieve. And so that certainly has a technical element of it, but data literacy helps us to then take action based on that. Yeah, I like that you say that. I think that those are really you know important. I, our data footprint in general, people are understanding that now. And it's like, you can take that data and you can spin it in any direction, right? So you can, you know, interpretation of that. So those are great things. Mitch, the next question's for you. How can federal agencies foster a culture of data-driven innovation and collaboration to accelerate IT modernization initiatives? Great question. Thanks, Kathleen. And Taka definitely wins the sock game today. He's uh, yes, rocking. He love it. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Um, but yeah, thanks, Kathleen. It's a great, that's a great question. I think um, you know, a, a few things that come to mind for us, I, I think that uh, really focus on what we call question zero. What are you trying to accomplish? You know, what, what's the point? Figure out the what and the why based off the data or the information that you have. You know, is it justifying a certain uh, direction? You know, what's the problem you're trying to solve? Uh, and actually have the support for that so you can make a good data-driven decision. And then from there, I think uh, executive sponsorship is really, really key. Uh, in the last three years that I've been with the digitalization team at the IRS, I've just seen how, um, how that holds true. Uh, I was actually reading a, a change management study recently, and it said the number one um, factor for success of a project is an active and visible executive sponsor, uh, which I thought was really interesting. It was a good reminder. Uh, we're very fortunate to have that with uh, Harrison Smith and uh, Molly, Molly Kay and our execs on our team, um, as well as Commissioner Danny Werfel and, and some, some other folks across the IRS. Um, beyond that, I think really uh, finding champions is key to creating that, that forward-thinking culture um, at all levels, uh, not, not just the, the senior level, but people actually working in the trenches every day. Uh, and I think that uh, I, I think that with, with that, it's it's a uh, yeah. Well, no, yeah, kind of some train of thought of that. But uh, I think uh, another another area kind of from there that we um, we think about uh, within our team, we have some core cultural principles um, that, uh, again, got to give kudos to Harrison Smith, our, our leader, for thinking of them. Um, but the first one is to be uh, um, be pro-digitalization, not anti-status quo. So really try to 
acknowledge some of those challenges that are out there, but be be positive about it, be uh, be be approachable about it. Another thing is to be uh, um, be transparent and acknowledge those challenges. Uh, a third third principle is to um, to find balance. The work is really hard, but it's worth it, and we gotta stick stick with it together. Um, uh, fourth one is to uh, build partnerships. Um, events like this, right? I mean, externally, we we're literally not mandated or uh, um, excuse me, we're not authorized or appropriated to do our jobs on our own. We need to partner with the private sector, with academia, with other partners um, to be able to do our job and get it done. But also internally, make sure uh, we're finding the right program offices and the key people that can help us build that culture and put that put put that diverse team together to make it happen. And then the last uh, cultural principle I want to highlight is uh, to be kind. Uh, a lot of the work can be very frustrating, and a lot of people have some very uh, um, uh, important uh, perspectives and, and backgrounds for where they're coming from. So just uh, approach everything in, uh, with empathy and respect. And I think that's a key. Uh, uh, those are some key ingredients for us to be successful with that. Yeah, I love that one. We had a podcast, actually, with all of our panelists. They will be publishing. And we talked about those in greater detail. So I encourage everyone to check that out if you'd like. But I like how you also talked about top-down, right? You really need executives. You need champions. You need people saying, yes, please do this. I'm encouraging you. I'm fostering this innovation, this culture. It's super important. Andrea, the next question is for you. Uh, you know, one thing that we like about GovFuture and GovFuture Forum is it's able to bring the entire public sector ecosystem together because you can learn so much from what others are doing and say, how can I adapt that to what I'm doing? So how can federal agencies effectively leverage emerging technologies such as AI and automation to enhance IT modernization efforts? And maybe how have you looked to other agencies? So that's a really great question. Um, I'm going to kind of piggyback off what Mitch just said. So um, DOI, I was hired in DOI in 2019. And um, from there, I was a deputy assistant secretary over at HHS. And I was doing... Um, artificial intelligence over at HHS, and I was doing blockchain distributed ledger technology. Um, and we hadn't quite broached the RPA. We were looking at that, you know, at HHS, et cetera, at the time. This is like 2016 to 2019. Okay, so, and let me tell you, back then, 2016, people were rolling their eyes at me about AI. They were like, whatever, Andrea, what are you talking about? You know, But I just kept plugging along. So, when I was hired at uh, DOI, I was taking some of the things that I did over at HHS, lessons learned, partnerships that I had made at HHS, and bringing them over to DOI. Now, the really cool thing is when I got over to DOI, they were already doing RPA. So the issue that I was having at HHS, getting them to accept RPA, I didn't have any issue really getting them for the, to do the blockchain, distributed ledger technology for acquisitions, et cetera. But... When I got over to DOI, I was like, oh, I want to do AI. This is, let's do this. And I was trying to give them the vision statement for that, you know, trying to give them the, you know, the big vision. And they were like, well, we're doing RPA. And, you know, we're, they were at the very beginning of it. And so they were like, you're the, you're our leader. Can we get your buy-in? Just like you were saying, you know, can we get your top-down buy-in to so that we can continue? Or are you going to push us in a different direction, trying to push your AI agenda, you know? So I was like, hey, I'm for innovation. RPA works for me. Let's do it. And so they were so ecstatic. And we've been moving forward with the RPA at DOI. Now, I've been going around talking to all of those partnerships. I sit on various government-wide committees. 
Um, I am the uh, co-chair for the Chief Acquisition Officers Council. So I get a, a huge opportunity to talk to all your senior procurement executives and all of your heads of contracting activities across the federal government. And we share a lot of information and different technological advancements that we're doing across the government. And we also do demos. We do demos at the OMB level, et cetera. We go out to different agencies. They come into us and do demos. And then we also partner with the private industry. So I get lots of demos coming in from different vendors to show us what's out there, things that we had no idea uh, that were existing at the time. Also, I have a, I don't want to say which vendor, but we're going out to my team at DOI is currently going out uh, June 28th to one of the vendors to their innovation lab so that we can see from them all the new and exciting innovations that they have. And then we have um, within DOI, we have a, a huge compendium of use cases for various uh, for various business processes where we'd like to see more innovation and more technological advancement, um, getting rid of Excel spreadsheets, getting rid of those PDFs, you know, um, that live on people's personal computer, desktop uh, drives and so forth. And when they retire, the information just disappeared with them. So we're trying to fix that situation. Um, you wouldn't believe that we're still facing that in 2023, but we are. And um, and it's partly, you know, trying to get everybody on board with the newer technology. So we have kind of our tentacles moving in different areas. But I want to kind of also talk a little bit about the, the leader, the head, the top person coming top down, giving a vision to the organization. So um, one of the things I did, I'm going to kind of, I'm really jealous about that Star Trek pin that he has. Um, so I'm going to be tracking something similar down. Yes. And let me tell you why. Because um, one of the things I gave, one of the vision statements I gave to DOI when I got there and to my business integration office, which will be soon the business integration and innovation office, the BI squared office. And that's the office that has all of our technological support. They do all of our financial systems, our procurement systems, grant systems, the any integration, et cetera. The RPA, um, we're getting ready to look at a blockchain for supply chain management, et cetera. Okay. I gave them the vision or I gave that director and then she gave it to her crew. I gave her the vision that I am Starfleet and she's a starship, you know, she's a female, so she's a female captain, Kirk S. Okay, anyways, and that, uh, you know, she's to boldly go where no person has gone before. And we have two offices that she's in charge of. One is in Colorado, and then one is in Reston, Virginia. And so initially, we were planning to turn our Colorado office into the DOI Innovation Lab. But that's kind of a ways away from headquarters. A lot of our employees and staff and, and functions are in Washington, D.C., Virginia, metropolitan area. So instead, we're planning to turn the rest in Virginia office into the Innovation Lab. So I and they are marching forward. Let me tell you, we, we, we've got some really good stuff happening, not just RBA, like really. And they're very excited. And I'm going to go out and get them all Star Trek pins. Like, and this is what we're talking about like sharing of ideas and and you know and people actually get more motivated when they can see when like you guys did demos for us today the three different demos right 
and they can see what we're doing and they can get in there and even play with it, you know, and we have a few, like I said, we're looking at something called smart parks, you know, and you know, that's with the uh, uh, virtual reality. Let me just put it that way. Augmented reality um, with regard to our national park service, which is under DOI. So we're working on something with that. Pretty cool. But we want to turn the Reston office into an innovation lab where it's not just about um, AI or RPA or, you know, distributed ledger technology, but it's also like you walk in here, it's an open environment, right? When you walk in, we want smart boards. When you walk in, we want, I want to be able to say, hey, Alexa, what's the temperature? And then Alexa actually talks back. It's hooked into the system, you know. I don't want to hold a microphone. I want to be able to talk and it's like, you know. So we're working on all of that. It's not just the system, uh, the, the business process system that we're working on. We're also working on the infrastructure. Um, so we're looking at, Turning the rest in office into all of that with smart glass and all kinds of yummy things. Yeah. So, and I promise you guys, when we get it all up, we'll invite all of you. So, okay. Anyway, great. with all that yes, said, yes. I'll move over. So, we do love field trips. And I think that's super important too, because if, how can other agencies learn from what you're doing, right? And you can be that prototype, say, this is what we've done, and look at what we're able to do. And you should bring this on board too. If we did it, you can do it. We love that. We obviously love demos. So, Stuart, the next question is for you. The Air Force is continuing with its IT modernization journey, but we do need to be careful when we're striking this balance between security and innovation. So, how are you approaching that? Security and innovation. Um, Okay, uh, two thoughts, two thoughts on that. First, I'm gonna take a slightly different kind of view than Mitch's team has taken. I think I think being empathetic and kind and working within the system is is definitely a good thing, probably in the majority of cases. But in a, in a minority of cases, sometimes you need to take a different perspective. Um, perhaps that can be messaged in empathetic ways, but, but I tend to find that like uh, my most ambitious projects actually come from a perspective of malicious compliance, um, and so, <laughs> and so, and so, working within the system, sometimes you have to think that's the board. That's the board. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. <laughs> so I mean, like that's that's where that's where Battery came from. That's actually that's actually where the project's concept came from. It was like. Hey, we have this policy. We're not really using it. Why don't we just make everybody use it and then figure out what's wrong with the policy and fix it, right? And so that's a that, that comes from a perspective of malicious compliance. Um, and so and so, how do you balance between basically um, security and innovation? One is thinking about how do you comply, but also at the same time perform or achieve the mission you're seeking to achieve. And you can message that in a friendly way. Sometimes you need to say, oh, we need to actually make a change, right? Um, so the second way I think about the, the perspective of basically balancing between security and innovation so is, is risk. And I think that we've um, malassessed risk. Um, so one way to think about risk is opportunity cost. So for every action you take, you're determining not to take an alternative action or an alternative course. Right and 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 opportunity cost is basically the cost of of uh, of not taking that action, right? And so inaction is an action. Actually, it's the determination not to change, right? Um, the way I see security in the DoD, um, we assess like if you look at risk management framework, it assesses it like 
IPRA breaks down all these controls for the risk of an action, the risk of taking an action. What it doesn't assess is the risk of not taking that action, the risk of remaining steady state. Sometimes the risk of what you're currently doing is larger than the risk actually of a potential action. For example, um, we, we assess risk, you know, basically the risk of deploying software or, or the risk of, de of deploying an LLM. That's a big conversation right now. We can talk about LLMs, right? Sure, there are many risks with deploying an LLM to the enterprise, many of which we can't even assess. Um, there's also a lot of uncertainty, different than risk, often associated with risk, right? Um, but there's also a lot of uncertainty around it. We don't understand how it will, will exist within the DoD. But there's risks of not deploying it too. The risks of not deploying it are that our adversaries could deploy their own LLM. They could automate their own systems faster than we can. LLMs are able to produce code. They could produce extensive amounts of code that um, enter that automate their enterprise and allow them to make decisions faster than us. The risks to that are unassessed in the risk management framework today. And so um, in determining whether or not to deploy software or to deploy hardware or to make change versus not, I think we have not yet assessed risk and that that uh, effectively and, 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 and that poses a challenge to innovation, right? Um, and so those are those are the ways kind of I think about it. I don't have a solution necessarily other than to try to to encourage decision makers to consider the risks of inaction. Um, and to take a perspective that that encourages um, different um, different thinking and change. Thanks. You know, we had talked about this on our podcast with you about maybe being perceived as risk averse, and you're like, uh, we are a defense agency. I do not know why people say we are risk averse, but I think that sometimes it can be perception, right? And sometimes it's well, maybe you're risk averse with adopting new technology because of the potential impacts. So to get different perspectives, how do you see your agencies with adopting new technology with, uh, you know, IT modernization? And how are you weighing those risks versus rewards of moving forward in that direction? I we'll start with you. Yeah, I guarantee GA is more risk averse than maybe DOD. Um, yeah. Trying to innovate among the auditors, you know, in some respects, is better than oxymoron, right? So auditors are known to come after the fact we tell you exactly what you did wrong after you implemented something. Um, that doesn't work categorically in an AI, blockchain, cloud services sense. Right? By the time we issued that report 12 months later, the rest of the world would have moved on to something else. So um, to us, the exploration of foresight when it comes to data science and emerging technology is paramount to existential threats. Because uh, if we don't stay relevant, well, by definition, we become irrelevant. Uh, but it is very difficult organizationally for GA to think about these because every organization has the day-to-day fires. You know, my Zoom is not working. You know, I don't have enough, um, you know, budget to hire people. That kind of thing. Um, but it's part of the having that conversation. I think we talked about some form of you know sort of top-down leadership uh, to make sure that we are dedicating some level of resources towards forward-looking aspects so that we can understand the consequences, we can understand the impact, not only to operation, but for GAO specifically, it's a bit, a bit of a dual mission. We need to figure out how to audit RPA AIs, 
right? But we also would like to use those technology ourselves to enhance our own oversight capacity. Um, and auditors are a skeptical bunch. So the way that we drive innovation has to be very deliberate, very methodologically aligned. So my approach is always be, you know, be the discomfort, push the boundary, but importantly, never break the envelope because cleanup on aisle five is even messier. <laughs> Yeah, well said. Great, great thoughts. Yeah, just to build on what Takeda and, uh, and Stuart were saying, I think that um, a challenge we have not only at the IRS, just across the entire federal government, is that um, uh, comes down to incentives. I think we we generally have a culture that rewards compliance and rewards risk uh, aversion. We do not have a, a culture policy environment that rewards good customer experience or employee experience or sound business judgments. And like Stuart was saying, I mean, uncertainties are different from risk. They often factor into risk. And when it comes to contracts with private sector partners, if there is uncertainty, they're going to you know, embed that in their rates. You're going to see that in the price. And then we, we obviously end up paying that um, as an agency or as taxpayers. So, I mean, that, that's an important factor for us to con consider. But um, I, I also think kind of like what, what else has been said, um, there are a lot of bad actors out there. Um, they're very savvy, they're very fast, and they're quickly uh, uh, learning about things like generative AI and large language models and, and how to use those in, uh, in, in negative or illegal ways. So the, the IRS uh, uh, and the entire federal government, but thinking from the criminal investigation side of the IRS, uh, we have a responsibility to intelligently explore uh, those technologies, get more understanding of them. If we don't have the expertise in-house, then we need to partner with private sector organizations that do, that can help us uh, prepare for and mitigate potential issues from bad actors that are using these tools. So I think that's an important part. Um, we think about a lot at the IRS with identity theft, tax fraud, tax evasion, uh, racketeering, some of the other organized crime. Uh, but then there's also just a lot of other potential good, positive use cases. And we we might not know how to assess that yet because we haven't tried it. Um, but I mean, there are there are a lot of other, uh, um, you know, countries, national governments. I was just reading about Japan. The uh, uh, the Tokyo municipal government is trying to use, a, um, they're going to use ChatGPT uh, for informational um, FAQs on some of their websites. They're, they're trying it out in a relatively um, safer environment, a low-risk environment. It's not risk-free, uh, but they're taking a calculated risk to explore and try using these these new tools that are out there so that we can we can get ahead of it. So I think that's what we're trying to do at the IRS and what we need to do more of. Um, and then kind of looking forward to seeing how the next few months ahead go. So basically within DOI, um, we do a lot of pilots in a sandbox um, because we're allowed to do the pilots without having them be FedRAMP first. Um, so one of the key things as far as us then moving out of the pilot phase into production implementation is then getting it FedRAMP. And then that can be a little sticky. We appreciate the FedRAMP process. We know it's very, you know, it's, it's there for a good reason to protect us um, as far as security, cybersecurity, et cetera. But, you know, trying to move beyond the FedRAMP process is something that we plan for. Um, we work very closely with our CIO. Uh, he's, you know, <laughs> my team's always works when I need to get in touch with him, let me tell you. <laughs> um, but yeah, we at DOI are very collaborative with our um, OCIO office, and um, but we do a lot of pilots in the sandbox. In addition to that, we do have a, a, like a systems IT roadmap. Uh, for all of the offices and business functions that are under me and under our purview. But we also um, are building out the department's innovation roadmap 
where we're looking at the different types of innovative technologies, um, you know, and chat GPT, where, you know, Microsoft just, um, just announced a public uh, version of chat GPT. So we're looking at that. I immediately got on the teams with the CIO about that one. Yeah. Um, but definitely making sure that we follow security protocols is very, very important. Um, definitely looking at the risks. Love what you were saying, um, because I have a lot under my um, purview. And we look at the not just the line of business risk for budget or finance or grants or acquisitions or property, but the integrated risks. And we're looking at also the programmatic risks and um and, and other things. And you're right, we look at the risk, but we don't look at the risk of not taking an action. So that's something that we're gonna go back and look at our risk profile for. You know, we have some other discussions for that. So that was pretty cool for this morning. But yeah. Definitely um, working with uh, our CIO office and, and trying to get things fed ramped is something that's very important. Do you have any other thoughts you want to add before I open it up to the audience, Stuart? I think it's super interesting, um, Andrea, that, that you mentioned the sandbox. Um, I think that, that one of the things we've done at DOD is we've organized these hackathons, which I've talked about previously, um, which basically is a sandbox with weapon system data. Um, and 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 folks have a lot of fun with that, uh, and and then and then figuring out how do you then ATO or FedRAMP those things, right? So so increasingly investing in automation, right? So you can go from like proto rapid prototyping to um, production while managing for cybersecurity risks using automation rather than human beings um, is is how I kind of think about it. And so it sounds like you guys are ahead of us in that in that regard. Excited to hear about the sandbox. Perfect. Well, it's time to open up questions to the audience. Does anybody have any questions? Good stuff here. I just, I, I love this lab. I'm actually just, I'm just actually kind of curious about about this innovation lab you're, you're building here. Of course, it's here at Reston, Virginia, so I may not ask more questions about it. But um, like, sort of like, where did that come from? Are, are there how how are you interacting? It looks like you have an innovation lab as well. I'm not quite sure. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and kind of. Uh, like sort of the long-term goals of that? I know that wasn't necessarily this topic, but. Yeah, so again, can you guys still hear me? Okay, so um, I have gone out personally and looked at a lot of different innovation labs from different vendors. And it's pretty cool to actually get in. I'll tell you one of them. Uh, we went to see this particular vendor and they were responsible for, all, for upgrading all of the airlines and all of the planes and so forth. So in their innovation lab, they literally had a cockpit um, with all of the like really awesome technology and we could get in the cockpit um, as participating in their innovation lab and we could fly the plane. Now, I wanted to do it because, you know, I'm just going to jump in and do it. And your brain cannot tell the difference between augmented reality and reality. I'm just going to tell you that right now. This is, I got in that thing. My co-pilot had no idea how to fly the plane, neither did I. So the vendor person was walking us through, okay, this is how you glide it on the runway, you know, take it off. Okay, so that was all good. We were, we're watching the, you know, the the uh, the, the devices, uh, the meters and the data on the dashboard. And we we're looking, and it has like windows, like you're looking out the plane, you know, and, and we're looking like, oh my God, it's cool. And they actually mapped in real like, um, atmospheric things and and the, the the actual things like we were taken off from California, so you could actually see the buildings and so forth. It looked like we were really 
taking off in the plane and we were really happy. Okay. We're flying, we're flying over the ocean, it's all going good, a little bit tipping the plane, okay, now we got it straight, and they're walking us through, we can hear them, you know, and when it came time to land that thing, we could not land the plane, so, and now you would think, oh, that's not a big deal, Andrea, well, we couldn't land it, the plane started going sideways, like we were in a storm or something, I started getting sick, like, my, I started getting, like, sick and I was like I started like and, and everybody watching us was laughing like they were oh. yeah but I was actually getting sick like <laughs> because my brain couldn't tell it was a simulation it couldn't so that's how real it is participating in those innovation labs it's really cool um we ended up crashing the plane we could not land it and you know luckily it was a simulation but and I couldn't wait to get out of the seat because I wasn't feeling well and they got me water and everything but it was really um, something that stuck with me like forever to be able to actually hands-on do the, the, the demo. Um, another innovation lab I went to, I was actually able to put on the virtual reality um, and, and um, they were filming me, right? I don't want to say which vendor it was, but they were filming me and, and they opened up the app for gaming. And I don't usually do gaming. Like I, I'm too busy doing other stuff, right? So, I, Okay. They said, oh, we, we, you, if you think that was cool opening up like YouTube and watching a 3D or whatever, we got something really great for you. So we opened up a game and they were filming me, right? But in my, what I was looking at, it was real. Like I could actually go around the corner and open drawers and I was like really doing all this cool stuff in the game, but I was fighting aliens in the game. And I was screaming, I was running around, <laughs> And I was like, and you mark the room, you know, so I was running around the room, you know, because in what I could see, I was in the planet. I was, you know, like I was in the game and I was literally fighting these aliens. And when I finished, they sent me the video and I looked like an idiot <laughs> because nobody could see what I could see in the virtual reality, you know, and they were watching me, they were saying that and they were laughing and everything, but those things, you know, and other people from my team got to experience it as well. And there was other things I got to experience. So I can't, we could talk all day, but visiting the various innovation labs stuck with me, the team members that participated that came with me, it stuck with them. And that has been a huge part of getting them to accept newer technology or create new business cases for how we can do different things with our current business processes and so forth. So with that being said, like I, you know, I said, oh my gosh, we have an entire office that we can actually convert to an innovation lab with everything, not just technology, but the actual infrastructure. Like when you first walk in, what is your experience going to be when you walk into the Ruston office? And We've done several, we've done three, we've visited three other innovation labs so far. Oh my God, some really cool stuff. And now we're going to visit on June 28th, another innovation lab. So we're taking that team, you know, every, usually it's about 10 people at a time. And then we, um, some things we film, some things we're not allowed to film. It, it just depends. Um, but it's been really cool. We came up with the, um, the idea to turn it into an innovation. And like I said, when we get it, you know, up and running, I'll be happy to invite well, you guys yeah. will definitely be on it. I know that Stuart has a hard stop, but just keeping an eye on that. I guess, I guess, for maybe on that question, I'm going to definitely want to open it to the, for the audience here. I mean, how, how in, in that same vein, because the Department of Defense is, is on the cutting of the of Helios. It's like, it's true. Like, in terms of research and innovation, 
armed forces are like really ahead of the game because they need to be, right? So how does that impact kind of what you were saying earlier about uh, risk and change? How do you, I mean, how do you bring in sort of, or do you even care? I mean, is that even part of your line? Yeah, I can stick around an extra five minutes. Um, but so one of the ways I think about, so we, like I said, I, I think we confuse uncertainty with risk. And a lot of times uncertainty is based on the inability to assess data rapidly, to understand kind of the health of our organization, the health of our systems, right? If if we had more, if we had a better understanding of the state of where we were, the decisions might make more sense, or at least the, the assessment of the decision might make more sense in that context and why there's a potential, uh, there's a, at least a request to potentially change. And so one of the things we think about at the Department of Defense, I think about a lot, is something called the night after scenario. I, I alluded to it earlier. And the idea is basically at the start of a war, right? Let's say on day one of a war uh, uh, with a near pure adversary, what what I would suspect many commanders would seek to do at the end of that day would be to understand all of the machine and human experience that took place in that day. Everything new we saw, all the tactics that were utilized by an adversary, what are the things that worked? What are the things that didn't work? We would probably want to know that as soon as possible, like that day. And if you could assess and actually rapidly understand that information, that could inform, number one, where you devote your resources for additional capability development, um, rapid capability development, rapid innovation. And number two, what are the changes you would make to your tactics, techniques, and procedures, right? How would you change your strategy? And so if we're able to make sense of our data more quickly, we can reduce uncertainty and make better decisions and perhaps be more open to small changes, right? Um, and that's agility. What I've just described is actually data-driven agility. Um, and so anyways, I, I, that, that I think actually reduces our risk by actually allowing for many changes. And those changes must be based on ultimately the data undergirding our organization and the way in which we operate. Um, so that's how, how I think about changing the DOD uh, based on data to reduce uncertainty. Hopefully that answers the question. That was a nice little thesis statement. Anyone want to jump in or I open it up to more questions? Yes, in fact. Very good, go ahead. Yeah, question. Yeah, Brandon Landon again. I have a lot of questions about cool stuff going on. So yeah, we like it. We like it. <laughs> so with some of the very advanced technologies uh, that some of the different agencies are trying to implement, how are you handling finding the qualified skill within this labor market? That's 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 tough. That's a that's an important and and loaded question. I think that. Um, yeah, and I guess there's the federal workforce side, and then there's the uh, um, industry partnerships and contractual side. So I think on the, the federal workforce side, it is uh, it's tough. Kind of like I was mentioning earlier, I think um, federal HR has a lot of, uh, of important components to it, where we try to make everything transparent and fair and accessible, 
um, and particularly giving job opportunities to, to underserved communities and particular groups like veterans and people with disabilities. That's incredibly important. Uh, there are also just some challenges with navigating the process. It's not very intuitive uh, for a lot of folks. Um, so we, we've done a lot of work at the IRS with trying to engage with um, uh, college students and recent graduates and trying to think of, you know, how can we build a future pipeline of, uh, of leaders at our agency? Um, and how do we get people interested in working for the federal government? But, you know, maybe if they thought about different parts of uh, the government, but they haven't been considering the IRS or Treasury Department, kind of the financial services aspect of the government and even um, even the law enforcement side that, that we have. So I think uh, uh, there is a public perception challenge, uh, I'd say in general, of the IRS, and that we're not just accountants and tax attorneys. We have, you know, folks like Andrew and and, and myself that are uh, um, in a completely different arena, but that message isn't getting out there um, in the way that it should. So I think we need to figure out how do uh, um, the people that are in particular um, categories of the labor market, whether they're, um, you know, uh, uh, data scientists or AI engineers or other parts of technology or, or you know, even just communications, um, uh, marketing those those different areas. How do we get them interested in the IRS? How do we explain um, the importance of our mission? How do we make our agency an employer of choice? You know, is it the training? Is it the benefits? Is it the uh, opportunity to, to serve your country? Is it it's something about the flexibility? Do you have autonomy with your job? Do you have um, you know, are there other opportunities to train and get some mastery? So I think that that branding communications piece is really, really important. And we need to be very intentional with uh, if we're trying to target a certain um, segment of the labor force, we need to understand how those folks communicate and receive information and become excited about things. And we need to figure out how to communicate in that way um with that so yeah great great question i don't know how the mic do you know if you guys have other thoughts Stuart can go next because i know he sure has Stuart. i'm going to share a personal story real quick uh to describe kind of at least anecdotal experience um with the challenges with hiring so i think we all say the right things right um but i'll share a personal story so um maybe this is now about two and a half years ago I applied for the, uh, uh, so I was at the time running development and engineering for an enterprise data platform called Advana. I had about 60 engineers reporting to me uh, for this enterprise system that ultimately is responsible for understanding, uh, making sense of financial and enterprise data to the deputy secretary uh, of defense. Um, before that, I had been a software developer at Microsoft and before that I had a master's degree in computer science, but I didn't do an undergraduate degree in computer science. And um, I applied to a role um, that said it required computer science um, education. It specifically said an undergraduate degree in computer science. Or um, in lieu of an undergraduate degree, you need to have kind of like the equivalent of an undergraduate degree. And um, I was rejected for that role because I did not have an undergraduate degree in computer science. Even though I had been a software engineer at Microsoft, ran a bunch of developers. Um, I, I think I'm somewhat technical. Uh, and, 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 um, and, and so anyways, I, I appealed it because this is where it gets really interesting, right? And they said, well, you didn't satisfy it because you needed to have 30 credits in, in computer science related study. And I, and, and I went to Penn and Penn, it happens to use um, um, single credits so, so every single credit is basically equivalent of three credits. So there's an assumption built into the application that actually um, that 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 every university 
uses the same crediting system, which it doesn't. <laughs> and so, number one, they weren't able to assess that effectively. And then number two, they said, well, we don't see enough calculus classes in your 30 credits of master's study, right? And I, I said, well, you know, but that's that's because, you know, advanced machine learning says CS and not math, but it's math. Okay, like natural language processing is is math. Like like how do you, how do you think back propagation works? It's it's you know it's derivatives. Okay, like I had to do that by hand. Um, and 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 so I'm fighting with a recruiter over whether or not machine learning is a form of mathematics and calculus. Right. I ultimately had the dean of Penn write a letter that said. The master's degree in computer science is more than equivalent to the bachelor's study of computer science at the University of Pennsylvania. And I submitted that letter. And they had a computer scientist, computer scientist defined as someone with an undergraduate degree in computer science, assess that letter and these statements. And they determined I did not meet the requirements as a computer scientist. Okay. If we want to hire technical talent, right? This What this means is that someone with a PhD in computer science who did not study undergraduate computer science could not be considered a computer scientist according to, to OPM. This matters because even if we have existing technical talent with perhaps differing backgrounds than what is believed to be solely what is computer science, which I guess it means solely an undergraduate degree in computer science, then, then we can't even hire the talent, even if they're interested, and even if they possess the skills and experience. And so I, I share that because that's what we have to break through. And it's not, it's not about saying the right things or even encouraging the workforce. Like once we have them interested, we must be able to hire them. Today, we can't. At least my anecdote may show that we can't in all cases. Thanks. That's a great story. What's the next step? Yeah, what's my next? son is studying computer science. Okay. Is he undergrad? Because then he can at least get out of it. Is he undergrad? Because then he can at least get out of it. It took years to get the data science world. But again, like there are data scientists that may have some physics, right? right? right. Physics is actually right. a very common field, or math, just applied math. Those are excellent. Like if if the way if if the language doesn't align with like exactly their experience, like there needs to be a qualitative, there needs to be a qualitative assessment, or 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 like actually some sort of coding test right. to assess. Like we should be assessing for skills, yeah. not a degree. Right, like yeah. let's add more barriers, right, to get employees right. that we already are struggling to get. So, <laughs> all right, I'll my time hack. I do need to run. Okay, it's nice you. Really yeah. it's wrap. do you have any final words really fast? No, okay, all right. And Andrea will let you end with some parting words. Maybe if you have I'm taking all like this in because, yeah. like, I have a lot under my purview, and we will be going back and assessing okay. those types of things in our um, vacancy announcements and with our human resources. So, and guess what? The HR uh, DAS deputy secretary sits like two doors down for me. So I will be in there visiting him at DOI. So that was great. You know, sorry that that occurred, but we all learned from those kinds of experiences. So.
Yeah, I just want to say a big thank you. This was an honor to be a part of this uh, event and this panel. Like so many great speakers. I was also taking mental notes from Andrea and uh, Stuart and Taka. Um, but this is great. Um, uh, like I mentioned earlier, Andrew and I are going to stick around for a little bit if you want to see a little bit more about our mobile app prototype. Um, and we'd love to have your feedback, play around with it, test it out. Um, but if not, just uh, thank you again to Kathleen and Ron and Lisa and GMU for hosting us. This was great and look forward to more events like this. Yeah, this was wonderful. Demos were wonderful. So thank you, everybody. We've got great resources if you're looking to get more insights and details on a range of technology that we discussed in this podcast and other topics as well. Check out our resources, books, courses, checklists, explainer videos, webinars, and more at govfuture.com slash resources, tailored for our GovFuture listeners. Again, that's govfuture.com slash resources, and we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes as well. To view this episode's show notes, find additional episodes, subscribe to this podcast, and join the fastest growing community of government innovators, go to govfuture.com slash podcast. This sound recording and its contents are copyright GovFuture, all rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening to the GovFuture podcast and catch you at the next episode.